Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. In this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast, I talk to Damien Klassen. Damien is the Head of Investments at Nucleus Wealth, a Melbourne-based funds management and advice firm. Some commentators are calling Damien the investor who saw it coming. I've met Damien a few times and know him as a very humble and intelligent investor who oversees the management of core portfolios across local and global shares, direct bonds and cash. This is perhaps the most wide-ranging conversation I've had on the Australian Investors Podcast, so I'm very pleased to bring it to you. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Damien Klassen of Nucleus Wealth. Damien, thanks for joining me on the show, mate. Yeah, thanks a lot for having us on, Owen. I know you have your own podcast, so this is not new to you, but perhaps you can 
tell the audience a bit about you, you know, uh, where you started your journey towards investing. I think a big piece of this episode in the series will be about who you are and um, I guess how that led us up to where we are today and, and your current views on the market. So perhaps you can just fill us in a bit about your work history, how you got involved in money and those types of things. Yeah, sure. So yeah, so look, I started um, pretty early actually. I started while I was at university working for a stockbroker and so that sort of, that helped a lot in their research department. That helped a lot because it meant that as I was learning at university, um, you know, I got to see how it was being used and, and which parts were, were really important, which parts were going to be consigned to the, uh, the textbooks forever. Um, and so then uh, after that, I worked sort of for four or five years in, in uh, different brokers and then helped start Aegis Equities Research. That was a, an independent research house. And the idea there, that was in um, just before the, uh, the tech boom, uh, sorry, tech, yeah, just as the tech crash was happening. So 1999, um, exciting time to be starting a business as, as it's all falling apart. Um, and the idea there was what we're trying to do is really create a, uh, an independent type of research where most stockbrokers get paid um, to, to list companies. And so what you find is that they were permanently saying, yeah, you got to buy this stock because, because I'm selling it. So, um, and whereas what we're trying to do was really give sort of an independent view to, so that investors could trust us a bit more. Um, so I helped run that for about, uh, about six or seven years and then left there in 2006, just before the, uh, the next one, the financial crisis. And, and I spent a few years um, as a strategist in um, Wilson HGM, which is a, a stockbroker, um, and doing sort of asset allocation and, and various things. That, and a lot of quantitative. I've sort of always had a very, um, I did a, a finance and maths degree at, at university. So I've always had a, a quantitative bent. But um, it's, it's about trying, for me, it's not about just using the quantitative side. It's about trying to marry that with the fundamentals because um, the numbers will throw out and say, here, yeah, this looks fantastic, but it doesn't tell you that they've just lost a, a huge government contract or that, you know, they're in an industry that's, that's about to, um, about to see a whole bunch more regulation or, or, or other factors. You know, it's, it can't capture everything in a quantitative model. You can capture a lot, which is great. And then it helps to, to sort of tell you where you're going right and wrong, but you still need that fundamental. Um, from there, I spent um, uh, three years with Schroeder's in their global quantitative fund and sort of learning, you know, I guess a lot more about uh, the international side and, um, and again, how, how they were doing the, um, the buying and selling um, of, of funds within those, buying and selling of stocks within those funds. Uh, and then sort of uh, that, that history sort of had uh, made me feel as if I could get out and do it again. And so we started uh, Nucleus Wealth with the idea of trying to uh, come up with portfolios and, and products that, you know, it used to be only the, the, the realm of somebody with, say, $200 million. Um, so, so the idea was I'd look at what Schroeder's was doing. And somebody would turn up there and say, okay, here's my $200 million, but you know what? I don't want any tobacco stocks in that. And I don't want anything that's got anything to do with costume munitions. And I don't want to be just thrown in your, in your fund with everyone else where the taxes get mixed up and, and, and other factors. I want to be in a separately managed account. And so, um, and traders go, yeah, sure. But if somebody turned up with, with $10 million, um, they'd say, no, no, you're just going straight into the fund. Um, and, and that meant you couldn't do the customization. And what we were looking at is the technology that was behind this, um, the cost had come down significantly. And uh, there's a few players out there, Premium, NetWealth, uh, Hub. And what we sort of looked and saying, well, if we could put a front end on some of, these, um, some of these platforms, we could actually be running portfolios for people, giving them the same thing where they, they do get to be in um, that separately managed account um, and they do get to make adjustments to the portfolios themselves. So whether they want to say, um, you know, you might like, think tobacco is terrible, but gambling's fine, and, and your friend might think exactly the opposite. And so we wanted to give people the opportunity to sort of take our portfolios and customize them to themselves without sort of losing that whole 
um, you know, the risk profile side. Um, so it's sort of like, I guess it's sort of a halfway house between running your whole portfolio yourself or, or being with a broker where you've got to try and get out there and, and, and they're picking all the buys and, and, and you're sort of putting a lot of your stamp on it, which is, so it takes up a lot of time and effort, as, as you know, and, and some people have the time to do it and other ones don't. Um, and whereas what we were trying to do is come, come up with something where we thought people could sort of dump um, a core part of their money uh, and, and we're only running uh, government bonds, um, blue chip stocks, both international and Australia, and then, ca then cash, whether it be international cash or Australian cash. So the, the idea behind the word nucleus, nucleus was um, it's a core portfolio. Um, if you want to do the exciting stuff around that, you do it. And, and to say, for example, you know, a lot of your subscribers might find they might already be doing this with, say, exchange-traded funds or, or things like that, where you sort of stick a lot of your money in, in this core bit that's pretty safe, and then you can buy the more exciting stocks around that or, or, or hedge funds or, or you know, distressed debt or whatever, whatever else takes your fancy. Yeah, it's a really interesting story you've got. You've, you've kind of got, you're at the intersection of quant technology and research and the way you've combined them uh, are really interesting and intriguing because from the outside, it's everything, you know, most people or most professionals probably want to do, but don't have the, I guess, the nows to do it. So you're at that exciting juncture. Um, so just so I can confirm, it's, you know, you, you're managing superannuation pools. You've got, um, as well as like direct investors who come to you and, and want to invest in one of your funds. Yeah, that's that's right. So, so you can either turn up and just, just give us the money or um, through, through a, a, a trust, a joint account, individual accounts, all those types of things, or, or, it can, or we can run superannuation money as well. So, um, yeah, paid from your employer straight in. And that was, that was a lot of the core for me because, you know, I'd worked for a lot of uh, different brokers over time and you tend to find that they need, and financial planners as well, they need people to have half a million dollars or, or a lot of time ones will have, you know, they need three or four million dollars before they'll actually deal with them. And they're very expensive platforms and they, and they, they churn the portfolios a lot and, and they buy a lot of sort of house stocks. And so I wanted something when, when you know, my friends and, and um, you know, relatives who, who aren't, you know, multimillionaires wanted to say, well, can you invest 50,000 for me or can, or can you invest, you know, 100,000 for me? At least you say, yeah, look, I think here's a product that, that we think will genuinely give you um, not only customization, but also sort of returns and risk management. That's, that's the big part of a lot of this is, is that um, we want to be that sort of safe core part where we're managing risk for people so that um, they can take a flyer on running their own business or starting something new or, or buying that, that um, you know, biotech stock because they know that the core of their money is, is still sort of there and safe. And so if that one goes great, fantastic. But if it blows up, it's not the end of the world for them as, a, as, a, as an investment. Mm. Yeah, it's great. Um, I've, I've, I've watched the along from the sidelines, the nuclear story, and it seems to be progressing pretty well. And we'll come to, I guess, a, a quite a wide ranging discussion of your insights on the markets and how that's probably been a very good thing for you recently. But perhaps from the highest level, we can just think about your investment process. I know you, you invest across asset classes. So this is not necessarily just a pure equity conversation. So perhaps you can just take us from the highest level and then as we go through the conversation, we'll, we'll, we'll dive into each of those, I guess, sleeves that you manage. Yeah, sure. So I think the, um, from, from the top-down perspective, a lot of us, is, a lot of what we're trying to do is the risk management. We look upon the equities as being sort of the, the core part of what somebody's going somebody's to invest in. And so what we want to do is, is the other assets, whether it be cash um, in different currencies or, uh, or the bonds, we're really trying to look to fit that into what's happening on the equities portfolio. And so um, traditionally what we'll do is we'll, we'll come up with our, our macro view by looking at the various asset classes, taking a longer term view and working out where, the, where, we, where we think they're going to go. The issue is though, um, 
everything's sort of part, what we call path dependent. So if I look at long-term bonds at the moment, I can say, well, on the 10-year Australian government bond, um, you know, three or four months ago, you were getting 1.2, 1.3%. You know, that, that sounds like a pretty bad return for 10 years, you know, one, one and a bit percent for that whole time. Um, oh, sorry, one, one and a bit percent per annum. And so within our, within our longer-term model, that sort of goes, okay, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a red cross against it. Um, but then we're sort of looking at our, our equities side and, and looking at how expensive the equities were and the growth we're expecting and, and issues there. And all of a sudden, the bonds sort of don't look as bad. Uh, and then the next part is saying, well, if, if we are expecting a downturn and we are expecting uh, problems, then bonds all of a sudden become the flight to safety asset. And so um, there is sort of that path dependence where you can, where you, where you can see a reason to hold them for the safety part. So, so a lot of it we do starts from that top-down view about looking at economies, um, looking at um, various ways. And, and, and the big thing is, what do we need to protect ourselves from? So for the last, um, say, the last two to three years, um, actually three years probably too far back. So as we, we sort of started running our money um, as, as, Trump was, as Trump was coming on and we were getting sort of that, that real push. And so for us then was about saying, well, Forget how expensive and, and, and everything things are. We really need to grab hold of this this push upwards from the whole Trump boom and, and the amount of tax cuts and savings and and you can just see companies were going to increase their profits by greater amount. So it was about trying to get hold of that. After that has sort of passed, it was about saying, well, well, when's this cycle going to end? We know that corporate debt had ridden, risen to record highs. Um, we can see in in Australia we had um, uh, you know consumer debt at, at, at significant highs. Um, we can see anytime. Central banks tried to raise rates. They had problems with the economy slowing down. A lot of it for us, and, and it wasn't just us. Everyone was sort of saying the same thing. You know, last stage of the cycle, um, you know, you've got to be careful. And, and so for us then was just about saying what we really needed to do was identify what was going to be the trigger for the end of the cycle. And for a lot of it, we just couldn't. We just sort of say, well, we can't, we can't work out a trigger. So we'll take a, bit of, a fair bit of risk, but we really want to keep a little bit sort of um, in the side just in case. Um, that worked really well. So 2019, for example, so you know, just a few short months ago, um, you know, our growth fund was in the top five um, super funds for, for 2019. So we were certainly taking that growth path. Then um, the coronavirus stats started coming out and we, we jumped on that quite early. Um, so we were in, sort of in June, we were, we were podcasting and talking about it in, at, the, at the end of, sorry, not June, in, in January. At the end of January, we sort of made the decision that um, cases, and, and we track quite closely where cases were caught. Um, cases that were caught outside of China were just doubling every few days with, without stop. And that was where we said, look, there's something, markets were trading on 30% above um, what uh, their, their longer term averages. Uh, we had um, earnings growth that basically disappeared. We'd already had the push through from, from all the Trump stimulus, and earnings growth had basically slowed to, to nothing. Uh, and we just couldn't see what was what was carrying the market higher, and so and we saw this huge risk. Uh, and then, as soon as we saw all the big shutdowns in China, that was where we went. Look, there's a demand shock coming, and there's a supply shock because nobody really knows how integrated these supply chains are, and nobody can forecast it because you know you think you've got a supplier that's Australian based, but you don't know that his supplier is Chinese based, and so you just can't see where where all the different dominoes might fall. And so that was where we sort of started down the line, saying, look, we need to take a lot off the table. So we did, and then as the, as the crisis got, um, we could clearly see it was it was it was just accelerating towards that was where we just went. Look, we just need to go to cash um, as much as we can within the portfolios. Um, so we went to um, yeah, we went to minimum minimum weight equities in all our portfolios. 
We went a lot of long-term bonds um, and a lot of international cash. So we really benefited from the Aussie dollar falling and, and the long-term bonds falling, um, which meant that we're basically even on our portfolios from the start of February to, to today with the markets down, whatever, 30%. Um, so, yeah, so we think we've, we've positioned it relatively well, but the question obviously comes back to when do you buy in, but maybe we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later. That's sort of, but that's sort of the reasoning behind where we got to where we got to. Um, your other question about the bottom up, that comes from a different perspective. So, so we try and the way we, we run the bottom up is we start with a quantitative measure because um, we've got about 1600 stocks in our universe, um, which is about the top 70 Australian stocks, which means for Australia, we don't have a lot of, um, we don't have a lot of scope for Australia as to what we can buy and sell a lot more scope internationally. But um, our key metric is to, to rank everything on a, on a quality score and then everything on a value score. And we, we sort of rate from, we put in, in the bottom left-hand corner, we put the highest quality and the cheapest stocks. And then we basically have a curve that sort of runs across. We try and buy anything under the curve is our, is our basic plan. But what that means is that if we find a stock that's, that's really high quality, say it's um, an Apple or, or a Google or, or something like that with, with quite high margins and, and a good track record, um, it means we can buy that till it gets a little bit expensive and even, even some of those, you know, quite expensive before we have to, before we have to start tipping out. Whereas when we buy a stock that's very cheap, but only average quality, uh, our model is then telling us, you know, when it goes up in value, you got to sell this thing. And, and that's to me the, the biggest value of the quant is being able to do that because um, it's very easy when you buy a stock, you look at something and go, hey, this thing's really, really cheap. Um, yeah, the quality is just average, but look how cheap it is. And then you buy it. Um, you know, six months later, the stock's doubled in value. And all of a sudden, your own mindset gets to thinking, hey, this, is, this actually is a good quality stock. You know? It's just doubled in value. It must be good quality. You know, nothing, nothing that's that bad quality. Whereas the model is telling you, no, 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 nothing's changed. The only thing that's changed is the price. It's the same stock you had before. It used to be cheap. Now it's not cheap. Time to sell out and go find another one. Um, so that's, that's, the, that's the ideal from the quantitative perspective. The problem is um, there's a lot of value traps that sit in with that as well. So there's a lot of stocks that look like they're good quality and they look like they're good value, but they're not. There's other issues um, that, that are sort of surrounding it. So, um, and that's where we need the fundamental analysis to, to go in there and just find, try and find reasons not to buy stocks. So we spend a lot of our time just taking the opposite side saying, okay, the model's telling us to buy this. Um, let's try and prove the model wrong. Well, let's try and find a reason why the model's wrong. And if we do, great, that stock's gone. We'll go to the next one on there. It's a big universe. There's sort of two or 300 stocks in our, in it, sort of under the curve that we're interested in buying. And that means that, um, you know, if, we, if we're throwing stocks out, there's, there's plenty more to take their, their, their place until we can't find a reason not to buy it. And then it's like, okay, um, that one goes in. So, th so that sort of bubbles up from the bottom. And then the top down sort of matches, comes down to match that to say, um, when we want to make sure our sector exposures are in the right areas. So if we've got a view that we're in a growth part of the market, then we want to be looking for, for quality stocks that have got that sort of discretionary exposure or um, you know, the cyclical type of stocks. Um, versus when um, we're going into this type of environment. So um, we just basically tipped out anything that say, you know, anything we owned that was a restaurant, anything to do with travel, anything to do with um, a little bit of stuff to do with media because um, media often, the media spend often is um, uh, cyclical as well. Um, and just tip into everything we could find that was defensive in terms of, you know, some healthcare stocks and, and, makers of hand sanitizers and, and Clorox sort of, you know, makers of bleach and those types of things that were sort of, where can we huddle in safety when, while, the, while the market comes down? So um, because our universe is 
is certainly our international universe is pretty big. We can usually sort of push it around and find, well, we'll just buy a bit more of these sectors and a bit less of those other sectors and end up with something that we think fits for, for, for the right environment for, for investors. So that's, that's a pretty terrific answer to my question. So if I could maybe, I guess, summarize some of that. You, you, you've taken a look at the macro environment. You've said, well, just based on historical figures, it looks like we're, we're, it's quite richly priced in, the, in equity markets. So maybe we would already orientate our portfolios towards safety. But then there's this looming catalyst that's kind of like this tail risk, you could say. So it's like, well, we've got limited upside. We, we kind of have an appreciation of our downside why don't we just play it safe for now? And then you apply the quality and value uh, from the bottom up, as you said. And one thing I'm really interested to know then, because sometimes we, we talk about uh, valuations and we talk about, um, you know, tail risks and that type of thing. But sometimes, you know, the boy who cried wolf, if you like, we, we always think, you know, this big events around the corner. What was it, what was different about say coronavirus as we know it today versus say SARS or something like that in the earlier days? Yeah, sure. Um, look, we didn't trust the numbers coming out of China, but we did trust their reactions, I guess is, is, is one of the key things, was that the amount of, you know, you don't shut down your entire country on the back of, um, you know, just, a, just, just another flu that's, that's floating around. And um, seeing the, the hospitals overrun in, in Wuhan and sort of getting acknowledgement for these things don't move in a linear fashion. You just get that doubling every few days. And it's, so it never sounds that bad. It's like, oh, well, it's only 20 cases now and then it's only 40 cases. Or, and, and Wuhan really shut down, like, um, way before, like, like, when you look at what other countries have done, say, say Italy or, or the UK or, 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 um, or France, look, Wuhan shut down well before it got to the stage that any of these had managed to get to. So they were, um, uh, you know, they were very, oh, sorry, certainly from a reported numbers perspective. Who knows what the real numbers were? But, um, but I think they were very much on that case for that. And that was the part where we were saying, look, there's, there's a supply shock and a demand shock coming. The, the pandemic, we didn't know for sure the pandemic was coming, but, but we could see the supply shock and demand shock coming already. We already knew in Australia there was a demand shock coming from, from um, the, uh, the bushfires and, and those factors. And the big issue for us was if the market had been on, uh, you know, 20% below its average, it would have been a much harder decision for us because we would have then been going, well, what do we what do? We do? But, but for us, it was saying, well, the market was almost 30% overvalued on, all, on our measures anyway. With, with slowing growth, it was like, well, what's the worst that's going to happen? You know, we're going to miss out on on the market pushing up to you know, to basically all time highs and 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 valuations that were back that we last saw in the tech rec. So for us, you know, it wasn't a we obviously didn't have a complete crystal ball on it. Um, and, but but as things got worse, we then just we we took our biggest moves. Um, you know, at the end of January, and then after that, we sort of uh, I think we went from so so usual in the growth fund went ninety percent. Um, equities and, and, and bonds, sorry, e sorry, equities and 10% cash and bonds. And our minimum we can go to um, sort of by our charter is, is 30%. So, um, so we cut to 40, so we, so we, we sliced 50% off our usual sort of at, at that and just said, look, the worst that's going to happen is we'll, we'll miss out on a, on, a, on a couple of months of the market flowing off and, and we'll underperform, but we'll be protecting money. And the best that can happen is, um, Best, you know, not the best from a humanitarian point of view, but the best from a from an investment point of view is we protect our clients' money on the, on the way down, and that was that happened to be the, you know, the the scenario that came out. There, there are so many, I guess, ways to think about this, and we could apply a different lens to each asset class. But given you're uniquely placed to answer the macro questions as well as different asset classes, can you just take us through what we've seen, kind of like the major events as you see it 
from the last few months. In, so we can you know, take it maybe as equities, local and uh, foreign or global, uh, bonds, credit, you know, even property perhaps. Yeah, so look, I think the, um, the, the Forex market, what gave us some, some encouragement with our view, certainly as, as we were doing it, was uh, the foreign exchange markets were already starting to move and the bond markets were already starting to move. So I think we can see they had a similar view to us as, hey, this is a risk, um, you can't discount. Uh, we spent a fair bit of time just wondering whether we were crazy, looking at the equity markets going, surely they can see what we're seeing. You know, things, these things are doubling and the amount of shutdowns. Um, it wasn't really until uh, I think you started to see uh, the outbreaks in Italy. That was what really, that, that was I think what really coalesced it for the markets and saying, no, this can happen anywhere. Uh, and then we saw the you know, markets tip out. And, and, and since then, I, I think the key thing for us is it, the falls happen so quickly. Um, and we saw the, the, the bond markets. And when I talk about the bond markets, sorry, should, let me take one step back. When I'm talking about bond markets, I'm talking about government bond markets, which are very different to corporate bond markets. So we'll, I'll, I'll deal with corporate bonds in a second, but which that's not actually an asset we invest in. We sort of treat that as one of our, not part of a core holding, that's part of one of the ones we're putting under ourselves. Um, so we could see the bond markets um, doing that. Then we saw the equity markets really um, tip down and the bonds did the same thing. And you could just see that sort of wholesale selling where bonds, the bond prices were going up, bond yields were going down and, and equities were really, um, really starting to price in what was happening. Uh, sometime last week, week before where we saw we actually saw bonds and equities both start to fall um, was was I guess slightly concerning for us insofar as um, it looked that was sort of as everyone was starting to come out with these big stimulus packages and the word was um, there was two possibilities for it one was that it was the unwind of a whole bunch of risk parity trades uh, and and other types of you know some, some big hedge funds sort of getting carried out of their positions um, or it was that bond investors had finally said, no, there's so much stimulus coming that there's going to be this huge inflation push. And so we need to push bond yields up because otherwise there'll be all this inflation. And, and, and so that was the danger. That was for us was, you know, that's the time when you need to get right out of bonds or at least get out of um, normal bonds and get into inflation protected bonds and, um, and, and the time to get back into to, to equities. But um, you know, our analysis sort of then led us down the path to say, well, if we look at all these other assets, we could try and see, say, gold or um, or inflation-linked bonds. They were they were actually showing signs of panic selling as well. And so that was where we went. We we sort of opted to to, to take the view that yes, a lot of this, um, a lot of that panic where bonds and equities were both falling at the same time was more about the trading. Sort of more like an, um, in in the late '90s, we saw uh, long-term capital capital management um, get taken out of its position. So it was a fund that was very big fund very, very, very leveraged into its positions. And the bond markets did some crazy things, not because that was what was going to happen, but not because that was truly reflecting the risk, but more just because these guys were getting carried out of their positions and everyone else was trading against them to, to, to maximise it. And I think that's what we saw last week. So, you know, it's, nobody can say for sure, but um, we do think now the, the central banks have got hold of the, that long-term bond rates and are pushing bonds back down again. Um, and so, um, yeah, so, so we're sort of, our take is that the bond markets largely um, reflected it. You might, if things go get, get worse, and, and there, at the moment it does look like things will get worse, then you'll probably see the bonds keep edge, edging down. Um, the currency, obviously, the Australian dollar obviously um, took a big tumble. The way we see, uh, particularly international investors who really drive the, 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 the currency, the way we see them 
reacting to the Australian dollar is uh, it's a risk on risk off bet where if you um, buy a stock, say, say you buy a mining stock from, from outside Australia within, um, so you're sitting in the US and, and you buy it in Australian dollars, is you actually get a double benefit. So when, when the commodity prices are going up, because the stocks will go up, but also uh, the Australian dollar will generally rise. So you get like a supercharged return. But the flip side is when um, we see commodity prices tumble like we have recently, and the stocks go down as well, you actually get a supercharged loss because you lose on the currency and on the, um, and on the exchange. And so, yeah, so, so we look upon those ones. And, and we also recognize though that when you sit in Australia and invest, in invest outwards, you actually get the opposite, you, you get a dampening. So when, when everything's going really well, the Australian dollar's rising, so you're losing on your currency, but the, um, you're making money on your international investments. And so, um, yeah, so, so that's our sort of, um, yeah, so, so where I was going to there is, uh, so that was how we saw the, 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 cur the currency markets and the, um, and the foreign exchange, sorry, the currency markets and the bond markets and then the equity markets sort of following through. From here, I think there's a lot of people trying to pick the bottom about, and we've seen some, some very sharp rallies in the, in the last couple of days. Um, look, maybe the bottom of it will be, so you will see a 10% rally off the bottom at some stage. Um, generally, that's not the way these things work though. You just, during these, these downward movements, um, you get some very sharp movements up and very sharp movements down. And it's, you know, there's some great profits that can be made for traders, um, but um, you know, it's, it's very dangerous for investors to be, uh, to be trying to sort of chop and change and, and changing your view too much. We're sort of, we're still in the view that um, we want to see how things sort of pan out. Uh, and in particular, the US, that's, that's where our real concern is, is that um, we haven't seen anything yet in the US and that uh, their healthcare system and their social network is not set up to handle a, a pandemic. And, and, and what I mean by that is um, they don't have, uh, you don't have paid sick leave in, in most states. Um, and a lot of people don't have uh, health insurance and there's a lot of undocumented people. So if you're either undocumented or you don't have very good health cover um, and you get sick, you're probably not going to the doctor. Um, if you are a, um, uh, if you're in that same situation and you don't have any paid sick leave, then you're probably going to work, which means, um, you know, it's very hard not to spread the virus. And, um, yeah, we have that, we have this view that the U S will probably be, um, one of the worst hit, one of the worst hit from the, from the coronavirus. And that's sort of playing out at the moment. So until we really see, um, some, some positive signs there, um, it's quite concerning. And you've also got a, a president who's you know, been on record as saying it's just a flu and he sort of flip-flops between saying whether it's serious or not serious. And so it sends out mixed messages to people. Yeah, it's quite concerning. Like what, from just a humanitarian point of view, it's, it's, it's very scary, let alone, I guess, we're not even at the economic consequences of a slowdown and a complete shutdown in the US. So, I mean, there's so much to unravel there. But one thing I'm keen to pick your brain on is the stimulus measures that we've seen so far. So maybe we can you can just bucket them. So we've got what we've seen in Australia, maybe how you think about that, maybe what's to come, what we've seen in Europe, and potentially with this, this greater risk in the US, maybe what we can see from them in the next few months. Yeah. Well, let me start by saying the type of stimulus that I think is going to work under this scenario mm. is that um, right now we need a stimulus that encourages people to quarantine themselves, whether that's um, payments for uh, rents or, or mortgages or or um, whether it's some sort of universal income or whether it's just government provided services in terms of food or what, whatever it is, but 
the stimulus has to be based around um, encouraging people to be quarantined and, and to keep away from each other. Because if the first batch of stimulus, say Australia did, was, um, yeah, we're going to give everyone $750 and please go out to the shops and spend it, was exactly the opposite of what you want. That's the type of stimulus you want after the problem's passed, where you're saying, okay, now I want to get people out there. So the, so the first stage is I want to encourage people to be um, to stay in quarantine. You want to try and um, give companies a, enough of an incentive to keep holding on to people. So, so Australia's done a bit of that, uh, and the US has done a little bit of that as well. And, and you get different ones from around the world, but um, you want to try and keep people employed if you can. Um, and so the bailouts need to, where you're, where you're helping companies, it needs to be quite targeted in terms of saying, um, there needs to be downside for equity holders and downside for, for bondholders by, by accepting government help. So that um, it's sort of enough incentive for companies to say, well, if I'm gonna go broke, I'll do that instead, but not, in, not enough incentive that companies will say, hey, no, I'm fine actually, but you know what? Let me put my hand out for a, for a stimulus package or, or same with people. Um, once you've then got through that part, then you can start with the stimulus of the rebuilding stimulus and the um, you know, money put into either infrastructure or whether it's a Green New Deal or, or whatever it is. But, but there's obviously going to need to be something because your unemployment rates are really going to kick up. And so you're going to need to get as many people back employed as, as, as soon as possible. So at the moment, um, I feel as if Australia is sort of, the first round I thought was extremely poorly targeted. I think that was all, there were all measures that would be great for the second half of it, but not for the first half. Uh, that the next uh, version's been a lot better. So, but but still, there's only there's only so much the government can do, and we're still not in the um, we're still not in the quarantine. We still haven't got the quarantine part right in Australia. I don't think the incentives right. I think the incentive still for a lot of people is to keep is to, is to break quarantine still and to, to just keep going and doing what they can, um, uh, and, and that just means that the, the uh, virus keeps spreading. So we've seen quite successful in some other countries, say South Korea and Singapore. Um, if you've got a lot of trust in your government, if the government's giving a lot of information out to people um, and, and, and aggressively tracking and, and they've got a lot of the safety procedures um, and, and the process is already set up, then you can have a much more open economy. Those ones, have, both those countries have shown us that. But if you haven't got those medical measures set up to, to track it down, you need to lock, start locking down your economy until you've got time to get those in place. And I think we're, we're sort of sitting, Australia in particular, sitting in this funny spot where it's, it's sort of half trying to do things and then then trying to back off, and it's it's very it's unclear where we are, and I, and I think that's not going to lead to a good solution. I don't think that, that's going to help. Um, I think the US is um, uh, look. I mean, we still need to see what the, the final package will be from the, the US um, or, or the next package. I think I think all all countries are going to be going through next packages, um, but again, it's so to date they really haven't. It really hasn't looked as if they're sort of addressing those two issues of. How do I keep people in quarantine and encourage them? And, and versus how do I stimulate the economy? It seems to be too much of that second half drifting into the first part. If you were if you were making this decision and you could click your fingers, where would you be sending capital from the government coffers right now? Uh, I think into well, the first one. I'd, I think they should be doing is is trying to really sort out some of the testing side and working out what what South Korea doing um, and. Um, and Singapore doing on the testing side that we're not doing. And a lot of it is uh, you know, the ease of use and the information to people. Because I think if people have, um, you know, South Korea is sort of sending text messages out to people to say, hey, Owen, um, somebody's been tested in your area and got positive, and they were down at your local Woolies from five o'clock to six o'clock. Um, if you were there at that time and you feel like you want to be tested as well, 
there's a drive-through testing station nearby. You can drive in. Get, you don't even leave your car. So people come to test you and then you're off. And in two days' time, you'll get a text saying, yeah, we've got it back and, you know, you quarantine yourself until then. But two days, you say you're fine. You can keep going or, or no, no, you've got it. So, and giving people that type of information then lets people, um, you know, first of all, makes them aware that, hey, this is in my area. I do need to be careful. But secondly, it gives them the information and the trust in the government. Because if you start losing the trust in the government of, um, you know, is there something on or not on? Are schools cancelled? Are they not cancelled? Um, is state governments trying to do something to different other governments? That's where people start, once they lose the faith in, in the government side of it, is where you start getting the, well, if they're not doing it, I'll just keep going to work. Or, or I found somebody there who's saying everything's fine, so I'll trust that guy rather than the guy who's telling me to look out. So, um, yeah, I think you need a, a cohesive and and just more information. I don't think we're giving anywhere near enough information. And to think that those things don't require billions of dollars, presumably, right? That those are just communication and access to testing are things that we should already be doing because it's, it's a relatively, uh, you know, it's a short-term hit, of course, but in effect, it's, it's going to save us a lot in the long run. Uh, I'd like to kind of switch over now into kind of this forward-looking kind of, I know we don't want to throw out 100,000 you know, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? But um, maybe if we can just get some, from, from your perspective, what you think is possible or slash likely in certain respects. But I just want to draw on one of the pieces that you wrote recently. Um, it, was, it was for your website, Nucleus Wealth. And you said, expect a global recession, Ex expect central banks to step in immediately to arrest rising bond yields, expect action on corporate debt markets to prevent disaster, expect governments to stumble on the right policy after all other options have been exhausted. And the final one was wait for clarity before deploying cash. And it's that last one that I'm really keen to pick your brain on, particularly across the asset classes. Yeah, sure. And so one of those ones I might jump in um, before I get to the, the final bit is um, that corporate debt market, which is still locked up. And so until corporates can actually get in there and borrow when they need the capital, um, that's one of the key, um, you know, until I see that light go green, um, it's not time to get out there and rush and, and deploy as much capital as you can because um, we still really haven't seen a financial crisis from this. So, I mean, that was, our, that was actually one of our initial issues was saying um, one of the big reasons for us selling down was we're looking at corporate debt and saying what could knock the corporate debt off its, off its cyclical highs. And absolutely, this could be the case. And so until we actually start seeing companies go broke and what the reaction is and how many of them are being bailed out and how many of them aren't being bailed out, it's very hard to say now is the time to rush in and put all your money back to work in the market. And, and, and one of those big reasons is we, we think the demand going forward post this crisis is going to be a lot lower. So um, for, for a number of reasons. One is companies were geared as high as they possibly could, so, which is very profitable for shareholders. Companies aren't going to be geared as high as they can. You know, if, you get, if Boeing manages to make it through and gets a bailout or whatever it happens, it's not going to run debt levels anywhere near what it ran at. None of the airlines are going to run debt levels anywhere near what they're running. Every company is going to be sitting there going, well, yeah, I, I could theoretically have this much debt, but why don't I just take a third of that just in case something happens again or we get a second wave and I need that money. So, that, so straight away, you're going to lose earnings from companies in that perspective. Um, the, uh, you're going to get demand shocks in terms of uh, people aren't going to want, all these people have just lost their job. The first thing they're not going to think about when they, when they get a new job is, oh, great, I need to rush out and buy that new flat screen TV that I always wanted. They're going to be sitting at home going, actually, that was really scary. I need five, ten thousand dollars $10,000 of savings now in case something like this happens again or again in case we get a second wave of this. So I think there's going to be this real pullback where 
um, the paradox of thrift where everyone's trying to save, you know, companies are trying to save money, um, people are all trying to save money. And so that's going to lead to, and even if you didn't lose your job, you're going to see other people that did. And so you're going to say, well, actually, maybe I didn't have enough buffer. Um, if house prices and stock prices have fallen, everyone's going to be feeling a bit less wealthy. And so, um, and so yeah, you're really going to need to step, see some, some government step up uh, into, that, into that breach. So, um, yeah, so I guess, sorry, I'll, I'll let away from that question a little bit, but, but so that, that was my first step is, is can we see the government bonds? And then, um, you know, uh, so what was, it, what was the other one I'd, I'd said there? Was the, oh, the house prices? Yeah, I guess the, the big one, the elephant in the room is, is property, right? So we haven't, like you've got, we're currently seeing this seize up in the, the credit markets. What happens next with properties probably on everyone's mind, right? Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I'd written something uh, a couple of weeks ago talking about properties, uh, Wiley Coyote moment, where I'm sort of describing it as being, you know, it's like the share market was in, in at the end of uh, January and the start of February, where it just kept on rising and you know, nothing below it. And, and it wasn't until it sort of worked out, hey, just a minute, there's no floor below me that we saw it drop. So I think um, some of the first impressions of people is, hey, that stock market's really volatile. Let me get my money back into property where it's safe. Um, I don't think that's the right reaction. <laughs> I think property markets were already very overvalued. Um, we look at them upon them. Uh, there's an investment side of property saying, you know, how much am I going to make if I, if I buy a property? Uh, because you couldn't make you basically couldn't make money from renting it out. You, you had to basically, if you're going to be an investor in a property and you were geared, you basically had to rely on capital growth to get you anything. So at that stage, um, that's what they sort of call the, the Ponzi side of investing where you, you sort of start investing for capital and then you, you gradually work your way down through the, the bit where, where all, you, all you're doing now is just hoping I can buy this and flick it to somebody at a higher price. So I sort of put that to the one side in terms of saying, look, we knew prices were too high. Um, we don't think investors are going to step in anytime soon to, to try and save this market. Um, you'd need prices to fall significantly before investors will actually say, yes, I can now, actually now buy a house, take a loan out and actually make money just on the The next part then is saying, uh, how else do people price property? Um, two of the other ways, two of the other keen ways, key ways that we look at is relative to mortgage costs, is, is wages relative to mortgage costs. And so if wages are rising, as you saw, you know, as the mining boom happened, we saw some big rises in wages, um, then people can afford to pay higher mortgages and that'll push prices up. Um, we don't see wages going up anytime soon. We see unemployment's a problem. Um, you, you might even see some wage falls. Uh, so, and certainly um, for the people that are losing their jobs, that's, that's you know, it's a, it's a bigger issue. And the other one is, is in rent to mortgage costs. And, and what you see there, it varies by city, but, Sydney is a good example. Um, if you hit about 200% um, rent to mortgage costs, so, so basically the cost of a mortgage is double the cost of rent, Sydney seems to cap out and go, no, no, that's enough. Um, you know, we're not going to go any higher than that. Um, we'll just prefer to rent. Whereas when uh, rents and, and mortgages get to be roughly the same price, and this is for houses, not units are a little bit different, but houses in Sydney, um, that's where people get to the stage where it seems to be they go, okay, well, if I can, if I can get a mortgage and pay the same amount for the mortgage as what I'm paying in rent, then it actually, it seems like that's you get a shift of people moving in. So, so we sort of put those two bounds. At the moment, we're about 160% on that measure. So um, there's a lot of downside before you get down to the level where you think people will actually be saying, yes, I can go and get a mortgage out and, um, and pay the, 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 same, um, the same as rent. And, and the big issue right now is your mortgage cost isn't going down because we've already, we've already had our two rate cuts. 
So there's no more, you know, in the financial crisis, that, that, that ratio reset itself, not because um, rents went up, but because the mortgage cost went dramatically down. So that all of a sudden, you know, what used to be a 7% home loan became a, a 5% home loan. And people could say, well, 5%, I can actually, you know, the same cost of my mortgage, I'll go out and buy something. So, so that's one part of the housing market. Um, uh, and the other part to remember with the housing market as well is uh, we've, we've been going through this uh, huge population increase in Australia. So, uh, so about 300,000 odd people a year in terms of that are, come, that, are, that are coming in every year as a, um, uh, most of them from overseas, but a little bit of natural population growth as well. What that means is uh, there's been this huge demand for new properties. Uh, if that slows down, and, and you'd have to think with, with all the travel restrictions and everything going on, that it is going to slow down, that that, that should you know, keep, help keep house prices low. The final part, and, and the, most, the, the most important for us, is the unemployment rate. So uh, I, I always use the example of 2007, 2012 to 2017, we had this massive housing boom in mainly Sydney and Melbourne. Um, also a little bit in Brisbane, uh, where house prices were up about 40%. And uh, over that time frame, we had exactly the same financial conditions, exactly the same interest rates um, and, and you know, as in, in Perth as what we did in the eastern states. But house prices fell to 10 to 15% over that same period. And the reason why, they'd just come off the mining boom and uh, unemployment had ticked up probably about 1.5%, 2%. So it wasn't massive amounts but it was enough to, to, to make property prices go down. Now, we can't think of any reason why we won't see at least um, you know, 1% or 2% uh, rise in, in, in unemployment. We've probably already seen that, just, it just hasn't been reported yet. And it's quite likely you'll see a 5 or 6% increase in unemployment. And that's where the problem will come, because there'll be people who just cannot afford to stay in a house. Um, there may be measures the government will do, will put in, in place in the short term to try and stop people from being kicked out of houses. But um, then there's a, there's a question about how long they'll last for and will they last long enough for, for unemployment to recover? Um, and and is it, will, will the rest of Australia be happy to bail out people who can't afford their, their, their home loans at some stage and, and keep paying for their mortgages? So it's a whole bunch of, um, there's a whole bunch of things that could be done to try and change that situation. But, but our take is that, um, while unemployment is rising, it is very, very difficult for those to see house prices rise. We could talk about property all day, uh, but I, I thought I'd just ask one more question. So following the, the GFC in the US, there were anecdotes and people saying that, you know, you could almost walk up to someone who has a mortgage and just take the keys off them and say, I'll take that loan from you because they were so far into negative equity that it was just, that's was the best outcome. So do you think that, that that's possible here? Because you're talking about potentially a 60%, um, I guess, drawdown to equalise rents to, pro to mortgages. Is that possible? Uh, well, so it's not a 60% drawdown. It's more like a, it's more like about a 30 to 40% drawdown. If you're, if you're, right. Um, because it's, yeah, 60% will leave you like, the maths is a little bit weird, but yeah. <laughs> um, uh, look, you know, I think the, the issue, and the issue, as you said, you know, if people have a 30% drawdown, there's lots of people that have, 20% mortgages or 10% mortgages, they're going to be well underwater. Um, it's not the same in Australia. That, that, that debt can follow you. So um, it will be, and, and that means I think Australians will, will hold on for longer. So it won't be a matter of saying, look, I'm underwater. Let me just give the keys back and I'll go. I think Australians will hold on for longer. But at a certain stage, they'll go, well, I've got this house. I'm underwater on this house. 
paying out all this mortgage on it and um, and I've lost my job or my wife's lost a job. One of, you know, one of us has lost a job and we can no longer afford to pay the mortgage payments. We just have to sell. And I think that's the part where, um, yeah, I think that's the part where, where you'll see the for sales. Um, the whole the whole behavioural, how Australians going to react? I mean, I'm only speculating as well. It's, it is hard to tell, but I think the, the the legal side of it is different in Australia, which probably means they'll hold on longer if they can. Okay, that's um, that's probably pretty scary for people, and I don't we don't neither of us, I guess, want that this this podcast or them to think of us as kind of like fear mongering. But uh, why don't we switch gears into something a bit more optimistic? Yep, and talk about equities and talk about um, you know, how you're thinking about, we've already talked about, let's get through the credit uh, freeze first, but then how are you thinking optimistically in terms of what are we looking for when we're going to buy these, these stocks of these companies? What's the likely time horizon? Like I'm, I imagine you're thinking like it's probably three to six months kind of, we're going to start to reassess and blah, 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 blah. Is that how you think about it? And then I guess what are the, the, the factors you're looking at from a quant perspective and a qualitative perspective? Yeah, sure. Uh, okay, so so one of the key things is, um, is to keep in mind this. Uh, some people call it reflexivity. Is that uh, you can't sort of. It's very hard to say yes. This will this will take six months and, and we're done. So to book yourself in, you know, thirty first of, of uh, October to start buying stuff. Um, it, it will be based upon how far markets fall. Um, it'll be based on uh, the, the, what reactions we see from governments and. Uh, whether, they, whether we start seeing second rounds of it, will it get worse uh, in, in winter months for Australia and better in, in summer months for places overseas? There's a, there's a number of different factors. I think for us, um, yeah, first step is, is that debt market. Second thing is, if you're looking for companies, um, you should be getting your shopping list ready. That's what we're doing is we're going through now and going, okay, which are the companies, which are the high quality companies that we like, that we think we'd love to buy at a cheap price because then we'll just own it forever. Kind of thing. So, um, so we're going through those at the moment. The issue is they're probably not going to be the stocks that are going to bounce the hardest off the bottom. The stocks that are going to bounce the hardest off the bottom are going to be the stocks that almost go broke but don't. And that's very hard to, like, that's a very dangerous place to play in. <laughs> so you look at these stocks with high, say Boeing might be a good example. You're saying, look, I'm, I'm you know, 99.9% sure Boeing will still be producing planes in, in three or four years' time. Um, but I don't know if the government's going to have to bail them out before that or nationalise it or, or whatever it is. So the current shareholders won't be the ones making planes. It'll be a new group of shareholders. Making planes. So that's the part where, but, but they're the types of the ones or, or, or the airlines where it's sort of a question of looking at them and saying, if I think they're going to make it and I think uh, when, when you get to the page start where um, things are starting to get better and this thing's almost gone broke but not, you're going to make bucket loads of money in those ones. But there's a, there's, a fair, there's a lot of risk in them as well. So that tends not to be the place uh, we, we tend to play. We're, we're trying to look at this more as a, a um, place to say, where can we pick up the, the best quality stocks um, for the cheapest prices that we're going to hold on for ages as opposed to can I find a company that almost goes broke and trade it over? A, and you might make you know, double, triple, quadruple your money because these things will trade as if they're almost broke and then, and then they won't. Um, so... Uh, if you look through the different sectors that are, that are highly affected, so the travel sector is going to be one of the big ones. We don't think it's going to bounce back that quickly, but there are some good players. We do think people are still going to travel and, and, and want to travel over a, over a longer period of time. So if you can pick up something uh, in that sector that's very, very cheap and you can take a longer-term horizon on it, so don't expect um, a year, in a year's time 
to be earning this, the same money they earned last year. Um, you know, expect it to take a longer period of time. Then, then we think there's there's opportunities there. Um, we don't think that extends to the oil sector. We've got concerns about um, uh, just overcapacity, and, and part of the reason for that is that when uh, these oil companies go broke, a lot of them have already drilled the wells, and so they've already got the wells working there. The the, the debt holder that comes in isn't going to shut down the wells, uh, and we think that the the oil demand is going to take a while to come back, and so um, and, and we don't know what. And there's a price war going on between the Saudis and the, and the, uh, and the Russians at the moment as well, and, and the US. So um, you know, there's, there are lots of geopolitical issues there. So um, the oil market, I wouldn't include in that um, unless, you know, again, seeing what happens, whether they come to all come to a, a peace arrangement and all decide to cut back on production. But yeah, um, the oil market, the, uh, the, in terms of consumer discretionary, uh, again, it needs to be quite careful about what it is. We, we still think some of the um, some of the internet advertising companies uh, we think will, will benefit quite quite strongly not only while people are at home but we do think there'll be a, a bit of a push as um, there's this there's this shift as money comes across from from older traditional ones to, to newer ones and we think this this period of everyone being stuck at home will will, will enhance that push um, there are companies in the uh, the ones we'll be looking at um, discretionary. So, so the ones that are saving you right now are the ones you're going to be tipping out of. So the ones, the, the most defensive stocks uh, are those ones um, that you'll then be trying to trying to find uh, the other side of. Commercial property, we're probably we, that's one of the we think will be quite interesting in terms of um, seeing whether people actually change their work behaviour now. We think a lot of people uh, have been sort of uh, a lot of companies will have gone, well, now I've got my whole workforce at home and I've had to beef up my systems and we had to work out over a three-month period how to do it. Actually, you know what? Maybe we can have you know, a quarter of our workforce at home at any one point in time. Yeah, we might have only had 10%. Now we might be able to have a quarter of it. It'll actually save us a lot of money on rent. And, um, and so I think you will see some changes there. So I wouldn't be expecting a big bounce back in the commercial property sector. Uh, what other ones were, you talking, were we looking at? Uh, how about financials? Financials, yes, they're another one you've got to work out, are they going to go broke or not? So the big issue for those is, um, and banks in particular is saying, banks make money from a, from a what we call a steep yield curve. So when they, cause they um, basically lend from people at short-term rates and, and, and lend to people at long-term rates. So if you get like a nice steep curve um, between the interest rates at the bottom and the interest rates at the top, banks can be very profitable. What's been happening is the bottom of that curve has been, the whole curve has been moving down. Now the bottom's stuck. The bottom can't move any further because it's already hit zero. And the other side's coming down as well. And it's where um, European banks have been stuck in this for years, is that the European central banks have been trying to, um, trying to stimulate the economy by keeping interest rates low. And they've gone to negative interest rates, but they want to try and keep their banks alive as well at the same time. So they're just trying to keep a, a, trying to keep a, a yield curve that's at least a little bit steep so that the banks don't go broke and, and, and failing at that. And, and we're worried that that's where Australia is going to be and that you're not going to be rushing out of this um, and people aren't going to be rushing out trying to gear up. And so uh, I think you've got a fair bit of time in the financials. And again, you've got the risk that uh, if things get worse and you do go into some of the more negative scenarios, which are still certainly very much on the table, that you get sort of large scale corporate um, defaults. If you do get house prices fall 20, 30% and all of a sudden people are defaulting on mortgages and, and banks are needing to sell the property at the, bottom of the um, cycle and pushing prices even lower and then you know, making more people go bankrupt. 
is that um, yeah, some of these banks you know, might be in uh, might be in the hands of the government as well um, after all said and done. So we're we're certainly not worried from a perspective of um, we don't think depositors have too much to worry about. We do think that um, you know, depositors are basically the last in the line of a whole bunch of other creditors, and that uh, the financial crisis showed us that that governments are more than willing to to step in and bail out banks. And and we saw that and, you know an extreme example of that was Ireland basically bailed its whole banking sector out, and and actually if they had let the banking sector fall over, it actually wouldn't have been done too much damage to the the Irish economy. It would have been the German banks that actually suffered. So um, you know for there we've seen it basically the, the government step in to to save the banks of another country. So um, we we are expecting uh, if if they run into trouble, you will see that in Australia. Um, other financials. Uh, uh, you, you will probably see some of the um, insurers. I think there's a um, there'll, there'll be certainly be an opportunity to, to, to buy some of those. There's uh, insurance premium repricing um, will, will certainly go up, and um, you know, these types of crises tend to make a lot of people think about their insurance and whether they need a bit of extra insurance. And there's, there'll be lots of t- tales of people who didn't have the right insurance, and so um, yeah, so that, so there will be time for insurers within that. Um, yeah, what other sectors we we deal with retailers. Uh, I think they're, they're your safety bet now. Um, look, you probably do all right in retailers across it, but they they won't be the ones that bounce the hardest off the bottom. Um, you know, they're, they're the ones that'll, that'll help you a bit. Sorry, when, when I say retailers, uh, consumer staples retailers, so that you're selling your toilet papers and your, your coals and your woolies and, and those ones. Uh, coming out the other side of it, you, you probably want more discretionary, but uh, but I'd be careful about what type of discretionary. Um, I think there'll be ones where uh, say it's um, say white goods or things like that, where people there might be a bit of a push for, for, for those. People spend a lot more time at home and might might need to replace a few of those or, or feel like they, they could do that. Whereas I think some of the more discretionary ones, like uh, new cars and, and, and luxury goods, I think will be um, restrained for some time. Yeah, there's so much to take in. It's kind of it's just we could talk for probably hours just going through companies or sectors. Um, and you know, just the, the the macro uncertainty now. I guess it's just so important for investors to keep up to date with this. And I'm so glad that you man- managed to find the time to join me because I imagine you're quite busy with a lot of people knocking on your door and and whatnot. So if people want to find out more about you and about Nucleus, is the best place to go to the website? Yeah, absolutely. So we um, our our goal is very much to be transparent about everything we're doing. And so people that all our all our um, uh, customers, all our clients. Can all see every stock that we hold in the portfolio, every bond, um, you know, every uh, currency position they can see. So, uh, so that's all on our website, um, and you can see all that we blog constantly. Especially a lot more now because people do want to hear from us about what we're thinking, um, you know, why have we got the holdings we have, and just you know, really giving people that 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 peace of mind that yes, you know, the stock market is down thirty percent, but our portfolios haven't fallen at the moment. Um, we're still not ready to jump back in again or, or whatever it is. And, and because from my perspective, I want people, um, first of all, I want people to trust me. So I want by being open and showing everything, we think that that helps. But secondly, I want people to, to only give me money if they actually agree with what we're saying. And if they've got strong views elsewise, they can see exactly what we're doing and they can decide, well, you know what, I will take my money elsewhere or I'll, I'll leave you know a small part with nucleus in case things do go the way they say, and I'll, I'll stick the other money myself. So, so the idea for us is to be completely transparent with what we're doing, and, and give people all that information on the website. And actually, one more thing. Sorry, I should have said as well. Um, 
my, my advice to your customers is to whatever you're doing, try and stay in liquid assets. Like when things are volatile and bouncing around all over the place, the last thing you want is say, um, you know, a private equity fund that, that's been locked up or some, some corporate debt bits where you think you've got the money, but it's locked up and you can't get it back. So trying to stick in those, those um, more liquid assets because nobody knows exactly what's going on and, and, and ourselves included. But one of the big key things we do know is in times of volatility, when things are back around, we want to know that if we, if we need to sell out of an asset, um, yeah, we might take a little bit of a loss, but it might be a 5% loss rather than being a, a 20 or 30% loss just to get out or, or not even be able to get out at all because the fund's been locked up. Yeah, that's a great point. It's, it's, and it's interesting how you dovetailed that with the transparency because we're seeing, like, if people aren't aware of this, then they should be now, is that the lack of transparency in some super funds is going to come back to bite probably the super fund, but more so the, the clients and the, yeah. the members. So right now it's more important yeah. than ever to have that transparency. Yeah. And it's actually a, I mean, we, we've got a piece coming out, um, I think tomorrow in first links, um, just talking about this, but I'll give you a bit, I'll give you a bit of a, a sneak preview on it is there's, there are, there are super funds that are actually paying you to leave right now effectively because the, the reason why is, um, a lot of them have these big unlisted assets. And so let's take the property sector. So they, they might have, say, 10% sitting in unlisted property. And that might have had a value of $100. And, and then there's listed property that had a value of $100. But the listed property was $100, now it's $60. So it's fallen about 40%. Sitting in their books, though, they still have the, uh, the unlisted property at $100. Not, not every one of them, but, but most of them, don't, they only mark to market, some of them quarterly, some of them monthly. Some of them take even longer than they do like, you know, every six months or so. So if, I, if, if you and I are sitting in that portfolio and we're both customers of that super fund and I decide to sell out my holdings, they'll give me $100 for assets that I know are only worth $60 today. And what that means is they can't sell those assets because they're locked up or they're, they're, they're illiquid. It just means you're going to take a higher, higher loss than, than me. Because if I sell out today, I'm, getting, I'm getting, still getting the, the, the full prices. So our guess is, rough, based on rough numbers, is that, um, and this was from about a week ago we did the numbers, was that uh, a balanced fund across some of these assets would be down about 20% if you said that they were 70% Aussie and international and, and 30% um, government bonds and, and a few other unlisted assets would be down about 20%. The, the median super fund at the time was down 13% is what they're paying, is what, they're, what they're saying they're down. So unless they've all got this magical asset that, that we don't know about, or unless they did what we did, which was sell all the equities, you know, a month ago, um, then basically there's a 7% gap, which is, you know, what you pick up by, I can sell today only down 13%, and the fund is actually probably down 20%. Yeah, I think we're going to see some of that uh, realisation in the next few months, and um, perhaps when you get that, that article published, you can send me a link, and I'll include it in the show notes to this one. Yeah, um, sure. One, one final thing I ask all my guests, and it's kind of this evergreen question, is if you could go back and tell a younger you one thing about money, finance, or investing, what would it be? Yeah, sure. That's, uh, I tried to, tried to prepare for this one, but it's, it's, it's a tough one to do because it's, I think there's, there's certain things that you actually only learn as, you, as you're doing the investment and as you're making the mistakes. I think probably the key one I'd be saying is, um, is using leverage. Um, can, you know, leverage can turn a, a good investment into a great investment. But it can't make an you know it can also turn an average investment into a bad investment. So it's that question about saying, um, and, and then the other parts of the liquidity side. I think uh, there's the, the parts 
that I really, you know, the mistakes I, I made in my earlier years was, was, was making that mistake in terms of thinking that, you know, the leverage, um, you know, some, some investments that were actually would have been fine if, if you weren't used leverage, ended up badly. And then the other one was that corporate bonds aren't the same as government bonds and that they're, they're, they're basically running a very similar risk to what you're seeing in equities. And that's one which we've seen with the hybrids today in, the, in, in these days. So yeah, so really, really for people to understand what I'd be telling my younger, younger self is very much understanding what assets fit in a portfolio and how they act under, under times of stress. Because um, sometimes you think you're diversified, but you're really not. That's great advice, mate. Damien, thanks for joining me on the show. Yeah, thanks a lot for inviting me. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.